0: The whole thing. My first experience with the Bible was that one Christmas, my mother gave me a Bible for Christmas. It was a living Bible, which is a paraphrase version. I remember the cover of it because it was a green Bible, and I remember thinking, oh good, a book. Uh, she gave me a book for Christmas. And I must confess to you that I didn't start reading my Bible or something. I knew that it was evidently supposed to be a very important book, but but I didn't. Nobody taught me how to read the Bible, or, or there was nobody that encouraged me to read the Bible. It was just a gift that my mom planted with me. Now, many of you know my story that um, at 11 years of age, on a beach in South Carolina, when I was all by myself, I had a God moment. I talked about that last weekend. By the way, remember that all of our messages and our services are online on our website. And they're also on iTunes. So if you ever miss a message or you want a friend to know, hear one of our messages, they're always there for somebody to log into our website and be able to hear the message. Last week, I shared about that experience in my life where God became real to me. But then a couple of years later, on that same beach, I had another God moment. And God called me to ministry for the rest of my life. Now, some of I've, I was telling somebody about that this week, actually an Uber driver. I'm in Chicago, and I'm Ubering around the city, and an Uber driver, we start talking about God together. And I told him about that moment, and he said, how does that work? How did you figure out that God called you to ministry? And I said, I, probably it's different for every person, but for me, I felt God clearly say that the only paycheck that I would ever receive was to be in His kingdom work. And so I always knew that I would draw a different paycheck than most people. That's how it happened for me. and I didn't know what that would look like. At first, I thought it would be music and other things. But anyway, the answer to uh, the next step for me was I came back to my local church and I asked my pastor. I told him, I think I'm called to ministry. What, what should I do? And he recommended that I go to give my summer away to somewhere in mission. And so I did that. And for me, it ended up being that I, that I went to France for the summer uh, right before I started high school. And um. There was a lot of spiritual formation that happened in my life that summer. But one of the most important things was that every morning, every start of our day, while we're building a, a center for the homeless there in Entre pierre France, every morning we had to give the first hour of our day away to God. Now, we were in the French Alps. There's huge mountains and everything there. And so I thought, okay, so the very beginning of the day, I, I grabbed my shower, I grabbed my Bible, that little green Bible that my mom had given to me, and I headed up a mountain. And I would climb to a certain spot, and I sat down. And that very first time I ever sat down, I'll never forget it. I sat down on a rock overlooking the little village beneath me, and I put that little green Bible on my lap, and I began to pray to God. And one of the things that I said to God was, I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know how to read this thing. And they've asked me to spend an hour at it every day for the, for the entire summer. And I just felt the whisper of God to tell me to go to one certain spot. And I didn't even know how to find it. You, you, I had heard about this guy named Samson before, you know, a man's man. So I was going to look after Samson. It took me probably 15 minutes just to find the thing in the Bible. When I finally found it, I took time to read that story. And that was the beginning of a lifelong journey for me in the Bible. And across that summer, I really began to read the Bible more and more. Now, I'll talk about that later, about the impact that it had upon my life. But a transformative experience began to happen in my life through that book that had been just sitting there, you know, on the shelf after my mom gave gave it to me for Christmas until I finally began to read it. Now, it wasn't until years later that I actually began to ask the big God questions like, well, where did this thing come from? And. How did it get at all of its different segments, and who wrote these things, and how was it translated? A lot of study came later on that I had to ask a lot of questions of it. Is it true, and how how have they been able to keep it true all across the years? Those are the kinds of questions we're going to ask today. They're big, big questions. But I want to begin today, before I even dive into the questions with the Scripture, just like I did last week, I want to start off with the Scripture, because the Bible says something about itself that is pretty outstanding. It is pretty remarkable and I think it'd be nice to kind of start there today so read with me if you will from Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 the Bible says this about itself every word of God is flawless he is a shield to those who take refuge in him do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar now, this is wisdom literature. We're going to talk about wisdom literature today from the, from the book of Proverbs. The writer of Proverbs gives us three things that God says about his word. Real quickly, those three things. God's word is flawless, that evidently God is a shield to those who trust in him, and that we should never try to add to God's word or he will prove us a liar. Now, I don't have time to talk about all three of those, but I just want to, I just want to point out the first one. Proverbs 30 says God's Word is flawless. Now, if you want to look that up in the dictionary, flawless literally means having no imperfections, being completely pure and perfect. And God's claim about His Word in the Bible is that His Word is flawless. Now, that's a pretty big claim, wouldn't you agree? His Word is flawless. Now, what I want to do for the next 25 or so, 30 minutes, what I want to do is I want to present some evidence to you, and I'll let you judge as to whether you really believe, Proverbs 30, that God's Word would be flawless as we talk about these big questions. Is the Bible true? Can I trust it? Uh, where, did, where did it come from, and, and how was it put together? We'll ask some big, big questions. Now, last week, when I was talking about, is God real, that big question, I used some metaphors. You remember those? The hula hoop, the banana, the Pepsi can, I mean, the, the Diet Coke can? Uh, today, I'm not, I don't have any metaphors, Okay. Today I have information, and so it's going to be, I'm going to move pretty fast. matter of fact, I warned Deanne in the very beginning, oh boy, you better have your eight. is that, that's Deanne, yeah, I thought you were Yvonne for a minute, Deanne, I love you. Deanne's awesome, by the way, we have great interpreters here, and I said, you better be on your A game today, because we're going to go fast, and so I want to tell you that as well, all right? Today I want to share some incredible information with you. A lot of things, you're bound to learn something you did not know. And we invite you to grab a pen. We've got one sitting right in there in your chair. And we also are inviting you to take notes. There'll be some notes section. There'll be some places where I invite you to circle and underline some things. There'll be some fill in the blanks. So just invite you to engage and stay with me because I'm going to go fast, all right? So are you awake? Are you awake? Are you ready? All right, so we're going to study and we're going to ask some big questions together. So some of those big questions right out of the gate are, where did the Bible come from? And who wrote the Old Testament? And when was it written? And who wrote the New Testament? That's kind of where I'm going to start. And then what does that even, what does it matter? So what? And so we're going to invite you today to pick up your outline. And at the very very top, of front of your outline, I've put together kind of what the front of your Bible would look like. So if you open up the table of contents, for example, in your Bible, you would see something like that, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it would start to break down all of these letters or books or notes in the Bible. And that's where we're going to start together. So you'll notice right out of the gate, there's, an old, there's two different parts of the Bible. There's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. Now, the Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books books and i want to talk about those together with you now we can't fit everything up on the screen all here at one time so sometimes it's just going to be better to stay with your notes here because you can kind of see it all there that i've put on the very front but so the old testament 39 books now notice in the old testament the new testament there are different types of literature that you can categorize these books into so for example in the old testament you have history books you have poetry books and you have prophecy books And in the New Testament, you have different types of literature. You still have history, but there are these letters that were written to people or to the churches, and then there there is a book of prophecy there. You know, the reason I mention that is because when somebody picks up the Bible, and if they open up the first page and it says, in the beginning, and then they turn to the last page and it says that it's giving us a picture of the end, they might think to themselves that the Bible has been written in some type of chronological form. Starts in the beginning, runs right through time. And that's not really how the Bible was put together. The Bible was put together with types of literature in different groupings, if that makes sense. So sometimes when the Bible is giving, it's in the history books in the Old Testament, they're giving a history. Sometimes the next book will back up and tell that history all over again, just a little different way. And, and then you'll get to a book later on that came before all of that, Because it's a different type of literature. So the Bible has been put together not as a chronology, but as a a type of pieces of literature that were put together, either in the Old Testament, history, poetry, and prophecy, New Testament, history, the letters, and the prophecy. Now let's for a minute just look at the Old Testament for a minute. In the Old Testament, uh, even though it starts with Genesis, probably the very first book that was ever written in the Old Testament, scholars tell us, was actually the book of Job. Job appears to be the oldest of all the literature that was written. Now, the first five books of the Bible, people know those pretty well, okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books go by different names sometimes. Some people call those the Pentateuch. But these five books were written, we believe, and is ascribed to, Moses. So Moses is the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible, with the exception of a couple of things. Now, it's clear that Moses did not write the last uh, few chapters of Deuteronomy because in the last few chapters of Deuteronomy, he dies. And, and a new succession, a new leader takes over. So it's understood that Joshua wrote the last few chapters of the, of the book of Deuteronomy. And it's also clear that Moses wasn't around in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you know. He wasn't there in the garden with Adam and Eve. And so the understanding is that Moses wrote the first 11 chapters of Genesis from an oral tradition that had been passed down about the creation of the world. But in their culture, in that culture, the Jewish culture, oral tradition was was law, and it was highly protected as it was passed down from one generation to the next. And so you, you, you see that those first few books of the Bible give us the beginning of the nation of Israel. A lot of big stories. The, you get the story of the Exodus, this huge redemption story that is, that is Israel's story. You get the story about Noah and the great flood or the Tower of Babel. Huge stories. Now what's interesting, let me just kind of hit the pause button. What's interesting about those first five books of the Bible is that in the late, teen, the late 1800s, some scholars begin to say there's no way that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. As a matter of fact, We don't even believe that when Moses lived, people had even started writing at that time. We don't even believe that writing had happened when he was alive. Those scholars were blown away and they were proven untrue. When in in the early 1900s, 1901, um, archaeologists were doing an excavation and they discovered an ancient city called Susa. And during that time, you've probably heard of this, there's this big thing, this tablet that's called the Code of Hammurabi that they discovered. During that time, the code of that stretched way too wide, but that's supposed to be a stone about this this wide. Um, the code of Hammurabi actually had ancient writing on it that dated back to 1795, even before Moses lived. So it proved that they were already writing even before there was there was the life of Moses. Well, let's look at some of those other things. There's a lot of very important people who wrote parts of that Old Testament. So if we go back to that history section for a minute. Uh, we think about that, that Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the, of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy tells us uh, that the, the first five books of the Old Testament, once they were written, were taken and placed into the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you remember that, that, that thing that was Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? They were searching for. Uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant was put in the Most Holy of Holies. And the scriptures that were written by Moses were placed, the Bible says, into the Ark. Now, what's also interesting is the Bible says that the, the further scriptures, that is, as they, were, they continued to be written, were each placed inside of the ark. So that number began to grow of these works that were being written in the Old Testament. So Joshua, when Joshua uh, ascribed his, his book, he placed it into the ark, and then moving forward, they began to place these sacred writings in this very holy place that they, that they uh, protected. Now... You'll notice uh, that that many of these books were written by different people. Joshua uh, wrote Joshua. We we believe Samuel wrote, for example, Judges and Ruth. You have um, uh, Jeremiah who wrote 1 Chronicles and Second Chronicles and uh, the, the the I'm sorry, 1 Kings and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles was written by uh, by Ezra, and then you get the Book of Ezra. Uh, Nehemiah was also co-authored by, by, by Ezra. Who you'll have, he'll you'll hear from him later during the inter, intertestamental times. And then finally, Esther, we believe, was actually written by Mordecai, if you remember Mordecai in that story. In the next portion over, for example, in the moving beyond the history for a minute, but by the way, those were very trusted names of great people in Israel, you get your poetry books. Now, I think this is one of the unique things about the Bible, the Bible has poetry in it, and it has history in it at the same time. Most books don't try to have different types of literature in them like that. But you get your Psalms, which was written by more than 40 different authors. I've already, already talked about Job. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, written by David's son Solomon. These are poetry books. And then in the next portion, you get a huge number of prophetic books. Now, remember, in the New Testament, we're only going to get one prophetic book. But in these New Test- the Old Testament, we get a lot of different prophets in the Old Testament, who are telling us, foretelling us, speaking the voice of God over the people of God about what is to happen if they don't do certain things or if they, they will do other things. And so you have some huge names here. Isaiah, Jeremiah, who also wrote Lamentations, some of these big prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. These are huge names. Now, this is, I want you to remember this later on. Each one of these were prophets, spokesmen for God. These are not small people. Who wrote these books these were big people very trusted people over the nation of israel now this is kind of a picture of the old testament but what i want to point out here is that at the very end of malachi when the last period is put on malachi between the old testament and the new testament there basically is something that people call a 400 year period of silence it was the intertestamental time and during this time the uh, nation of Israel had been taken away in captivity to Babylon. And they had been, they had been completely sacked in Israel and uh, taken prisoner to another land. And we get some of those works that tell us a little bit of what happened during that time and then how they came back. But here's what I want you to understand. During that time, during that intertestamental period, we call it the silent years because it's almost as if God withdrew. We don't have a lot of prophecy going on during that time. We don't have a lot of writing going on during that time. It's almost as if God hid himself during that time and then we begin the New Testament and we begin with the story of the coming of the Christ. Today I want to address three questions that got dropped back in the little buckets in the back and this is the first one that I wanted to address out of all the questions that you guys have submitted. Somebody threw this question in one of the bins and I'll read it just like they wrote it. How come God actually spoke to people in the Old Testament and then stopped physically speaking in the New Testament. Right? You've heard that question before, right? Great question, whoever, you, whoever gave that, because it's a question that many people have, right? Sometimes God looks one way in the Old Testament. Why doesn't it look like he's doing that in the New Testament? So let me answer. I'm going to take a couple of minutes with each one of these questions to try to answer this question from me, okay? I'm going to answer the question as I would. And what I want to point out is that um, God does seem to speak, even audibly sometimes, in the Old Testament. I mean, you have some even crazy sounding stories in the Old Testament. I mean, he speaks to a donkey one time. Literally, can you imagine a donkey speaking to you and, it, and it, being, it being God's word? But don't forget in the New Testament, God also spoke. I mean, there were moments in the New Testament where he spoke audibly. There were moments where he spoke to people over and over again. Uh, sometimes they even said it sounded like thunder. Remember Jesus' baptism and God speaking? The, dove, the heavens opening up, the dove ascending, God speaking. So God was still doing that in the New Testament. But what I think this person is pointing out is, that sometimes it seems like for us today, I don't hear, I've never heard any of y'all say you just heard God audibly. Why don't we hear about God speaking audibly? I know that we, we probably all believe that God speaks to our hearts, speaks to our spirits. But this person is asking, why doesn't God still speak the same way today? A couple of answers, no, actually five. I'm going to give you five real quick answers to that question. The first answer I would say would be, we have to, we have to address it. The first answer is, sometimes God says that he will withdraw himself. He will hide himself because of our sin. Listen to this scripture, and I don't have it put on the screen, but you might want to write it in your notes somewhere. I want to read from Micah, Micah chapter 3, verse 4. Micah 3, 4, you might want to write that down. The prophet Micah said this, Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. And at at that time he will hide his face from them because of the evil that they have done. When we ask ourselves why we don't hear God speaking audibly, I think one of the things we have to be serious about is that according to God's Word, He says when there is great sin, He will even withdraw so that we will become more needful, and realize our distance from Him, and return back to Him. So one of the answers to the question about why we might not hear the voice of God very audibly is because of Micah 3.4. It tells us that our sin will cause God to do certain things. But another answer, a second answer that I would say is, I think if you ask God that, we have to go back to what we talked about last week, Right? God would say, I speak every day. The first miracle that God ever did was the miracle of creation. And remember us reading from Psalm uh, 91 Yes, last week, we talked about how the creations are the handiwork of God and that his mouth speaks forward. God would say, listen, I have put my voice all around you. I am speaking to you every day through the very creation that I have, that I have put all around you. So I think that God would say, listen, I am speaking. Another, a third answer that I would give to that is that... Um, There are are moments where, where God seems hidden, but He wants us to push after Him. And He will reveal Himself to us. And if you think God has stopped speaking, I think it's important maybe for you to ask somebody else, have you heard from God lately? Have you heard God's voice? What I've found is that I've never heard the audible voice of God, but I know that God speaks every day. Now, it's a little different now. I mean, think about how much you have that the people in the Old Testament didn't have. They didn't have a printed Bible like you and I have, and he speaks through that all the time, doesn't he? I mean, there is so much of the revelation of God that he has given us, even in the cross of Jesus Christ, that they didn't have. Scholars, theologians call this a progressive revelation, that God is continuing to reveal. He's not not staying unhidden. He started with creation, and then continually he's revealing himself in new ways at new seasons and new times. And think about where you live. In the great economy, in the great mystery cosmic plan of God, He birthed you now, in this generation. And think about all the ways that He's revealed Himself up until this point. Interesting fifth way that I'd answer that question. Those folks in the Old Testament, they didn't have something that in the New Testament you and I were provided. God said, I will no longer speak to them from outside. I will put my spirit and place my spirit inside of them. God has put his Holy Spirit in us. I think that's a great answer to the question. Why does God need to speak around us or over us? The Bible says he has offered his spirit inside of us, that it would not only be a seal and a guarantee, but that it would be an ever-present God. It's a great question. And boy, I don't know whether I'd like to or not. It might scare the fool out of me if I heard the audible voice of God. But, but I think most of us think, God, some, sometimes we just think, whew, Sure would make this decision clear if you just write it on the wall or say it out loud. I think God is trying to say all the time, "Listen, I'm speaking. Listen, I never stop speaking. Listen." So the New Testament, let's dive into that. Unpause. We're going to move off that question for a minute. Let's hit the unpause button and we'll move forward. In the New Testament, 27 books. Now these, the New Testament uh, was, was, has the different types as well. history. The letters and the prophecy. Let's just roll over to the letters for a minute. I think this is interesting. When you look at the letters, more than half, well, actually, almost exactly half the New Testament was written by Paul. Thirteen letters, Paul wrote these letters. He wrote them to people, he wrote them to churches. And, and we, we have a lot to be thankful for, for Paul writing and then those letters being copied and being produced and sent out. And then we have a couple of letters from Luke. Luke wrote his gospel and he wrote the, the uh the history book of Acts. We have uh, John, who wrote five different books. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the, and the Revelation. John was, by the way, the best friend of Jesus. He called himself the Most Beloved. He was the best friend of Jesus, and he wrote these books for us. We have uh, Peter, who wrote two books. We have Matthew, who wrote a book. We have James and Jude, who wrote books. By the way, these were the physical brothers of Jesus who did not believe that Jesus was Messiah until they saw him resurrected from the cross and from death. That'll make you a believer. They wrote these books as well. Um, these are big people who wrote these books. Just like in the Old Testament. Big people who wrote these books. Interestingly enough, one, one final thought here. The book of Hebrews. Hebrews is the only book in the, in the New Testament that we're never told who wrote it, Okay. And the authorship is anonymous. And some folks have their idea of who wrote it. Some folks think Paul wrote it, and some folks think Apollos wrote it. Some have suggested that Barnabas wrote it. Some even suggested that Priscilla wrote the book of Hebrews, but because women were not given the right kind of authority or credibility that she kept her name out of it. It's clear that it came from some type of sermon. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. But by and large, we get this story of the unfolding grace of God through Jesus Christ. Now, let me share a scripture with you, because what are we talking about here? How did we get these books? We're gonna, in a minute, we'll talk about how they, how they kind of got all the way to us, but where they came from. The Bible says this in Ephesians 2.20, the church is, was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You might want to underline that. The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So what I want to point out is when we talk about the Bible and where it came from and who wrote it significant people wrote these letters or these books in the Bible. They weren't written by people we don't even know who they were. These were the leaders of Israel, or these were the apostles doing the work of the ministry with Jesus. And the Bible says the foundation of the church isn't written by whoever wrote that or some guy put that down. It's written from the, from the very foundation by the apostles and the prophets. I think that's important. Second question somebody threw down. I told you I was going to answer three questions. Here's a question somebody threw out, and I thought, this is a great question. A lot of folks have heard this before. They wrote this. I heard there were more books in the Bible. I think they were removed at some time during translations. Why were they taken out? And isn't the Word of God inspired the whole thing? Great question. And I bet you've probably heard about some extra books, right? By the way, whole movies have been written about the extra books, the Da Vinci Code, and all that stuff, right? So let me kind of explain a little bit of that, and I'll try again to do it in about two minutes. Let's deal with the New Testament first. There were some extra books written around the time, um, or even in the, in the, about a hundred, within the 100-year period, right after these books were written in our New Testament. And scholars during the first century had to decide what is the Word of God and what isn't the Word of God. And so they dropped a canon or a measurement. Think of a ruler. They dropped a ruler by all the books, and they were basically three things. Did this person walk and talk with Jesus? It mattered if they did. And if they didn't, if we we know they didn't walk and talk with Jesus, they don't meet the mark on that first one. How has this been used in the history of the church already? How has their letter been used? And do we see, third, third measurement, do we see erroneous teachings in here or political? Are they trying to push an agenda? And if they are, we're going to throw them out. And so there were some books that never made our canon. So the answer to that person's question is, these books that you're talking about, were they in the New Testament? They were never in our New Testament. When I was in school at Emory doing my grad program, we had to read a lot of those books. I had to read the Gospel of Thomas, for example. The Gospel of Thomas. Now, it wasn't really written by Thomas, even though it was subscribed to Thomas. And there was a lot of tomfoolery in it and a lot of error in it. So the scholars threw it out. And there was a lot of political jockeying, trying to put different thoughts in there for the different political parties at the time. They threw it out. And you can still get it. It's at Barnes and Noble. You can read the Gospel of Thomas if you want to. It'll tell you stories about the childhood of Jesus, about him making a bird and out of mud and throwing it up in the air and making all the children, uh, you know, gasp at at his miraculous ability. But here's what I want you to know. Those extra books that were thrown out by the first century, second century church, they actually never made in our Bible. Only the books, those 27 that I talked about before, they're the only ones who made in our Bible and they made it there because of three things. Who wrote them? They had to have have had an experience with Christ in some way. Secondly, how had these books already, even in the first hundred years, been used to the edification of God's people and and His church? And thirdly, can we find error in these? And are they pushing agendas that don't fit with the the teachings of Christ? Those 27 books were chosen. Now, let me talk, talk about the Old Testament. Because if you pick up a Catholic Bible, and you look right in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll find 15 books called the Apocrypha. Stephen, where did those come from? Well, the Apocrypha, there's 15 books that we call the Apocrypha. Most Bibles, Protestant Bibles, don't even have those books between the Old Testament and New Testament. And they're basically the history of Israel, okay? And those didn't get put into the Catholic Bible until the 16th century. So they weren't there for a long, long time. And finally, the Catholic Church said, we want to put these... These stories, like First and Second Ezra's and the Maccabean period, the Maccabean revolt, they want to put those history lessons in their Bible. So does that make sense? There are 15 books, normally that you'd see in the Catholic Bible, that exist right between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that are basically the history of Israel, didn't ever get put there until the 16th century. By the way, I love this person's question, because it helps me remember a couple of things about what I'm trying to share with you. The last part of that question says, why were they taken out? Well, they weren't taken out, but... Isn't the Word of God inspired? Now, isn't that the question for the day? That word inspires, you know that means breathe? Think of, think of uh, that word spire comes from the word breath. And the Bible literally says of itself that it was breathed of God through humanity as they wrote the Bible. Yes, the answer to that question is absolutely. We believe that it's been breathed of God and inspired not a part of it, the whole thing. Now, let's move forward uh, from that New Testament. Um, that question, we'll unpause that but- button from there, and we're going to talk about how the, the Bible is unique, okay? So flip your outline over. Let's talk about the uniqueness of this book, how it's different from a lot of other books. And it's, it is unique in some very peculiar ways. The first one is this, in its composition, in the way it was written, in the way it came to be, okay, in its composition. And so what do you mean by that, Stephen? Let me just share, and I didn't put this in your notes, you might want to just write it out in the margin, a few interesting things about the composition of the Bible. The first one is this, um, and I think these things are amazing, by the way. Put it up there, Fred. Nope, nope, nope. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll finally get there. Yes, there we go. And you can put the whole thing up there. It was written over 1,600 years by more than 40 different authors. By the way, that's very conservative. Probably more than 40 authors in the book of Psalms alone. It was written with different backgrounds, different people from different professions. It was written in three different languages, which is interesting. It was written, uh, the, the 99% of the Old Testament is in Hebrew, with the exception of a couple of verses that were during that period while they were in Babylon, and those were written in Aramaic, which is a common language in, in that Babylonian area. And then all of the New Testament was written in Greek. It was written on three different continents, and yet it has the continuity and the agreement from cover to cover over 1,600 years, which is amazing. What book can you pick up that from cover to cover has that kind of agreement over two millennia like that? That is amazing to me. So it's unique in its composition. You normally can't find a book like that. Here's another way that it's unique. It's unique in its circulation. It's the single most published book. Billions and billions of Bibles have been published. And this year alone, millions and millions more will be published. And here's the cool thing about its circulation: the Bible continues to stay on the bestseller list. Isn't that cool? It must be a pretty good book if it stays on the bestseller list. It's unique also in its translation. In its translation, it is the single uh, most widely translated book in the world. Scholars have translated it into more than a thousand different languages, and here's the cool thing. Right now, this, this very moment, there's an army of scholars today still translating the Bible into new languages. It is, it is, it's unique in that respect. Here's another one. It's unique in its durability. The Bible has lasted through bans. People have tried to ban the Bible. They've tried to burn all the Bibles. People have criticized the Bible. They've ridiculed the Bible, but the Bible still keeps going, And that's unlike a lot of different books. And here's the last one, and I think it's big. It's it's unique in its effect on people. I was on on two planes this past week, going to and from Chicago. And I just took note of myself around me who was reading stuff. The girl next to me for the entire flight on the way back to Atlanta read a cosmopolitan magazine. You know, that's what she was reading. On the way out, another person was reading a book of fiction, kind of Nora Roberts book on, on on their tablet, you know. And I thought to myself, as I watched people reading different things, I thought to myself about how people normally read. Normally when somebody reads a book or a magazine, they're just wanting to kind of do a little escape stuff, you know, or they're trying to want to enter into a story, or they're loving to kind of get into the plot of it. But when a person finishes a book, they normally go and just put it down somewhere. And they're done with that book. They'll put it on a shelf and they'll move to the next book that they might enjoy of what other kind. That's not like the Bible. Have you noticed about the Bible that people don't ever seem to be finished with the Bible? I mean, they read it, and then they go back and read again. And then they read again, and they read again. And a lot of times they start underlining stuff. I didn't see nobody underlining stuff in Cosmo magazine, you know. Uh, They start underlining stuff. And here's also something. They don't go put it on a shelf and say, I'm done with it. With the Bible, normally they're keeping it beside their bed, or they're taking it to their office and their work. They're keeping the Bible around. They keep them in their cars. And they keep the Bible. It's a different kind of book. And so here's the big point. The effect that it has on people is totally different than any other book. Because people seem to never be finished with it. So just a few, few things about that people never being finished with the Bible. Their, they, their attitudes are changed when they read the Bible. Their view of the world is changed when they read the Bible. Their view of what happens at the end of this life when you die is changed when they read how the Bible addresses that. The Bible changes people. I think that's very Interesting. Because most books, let's be honest, when you're reading Stephen King, you don't finish the book and say, oh, that changed me, you know? Most books just don't have that kind of effect on somebody. Let me pause here for a minute and say, um, a cool thing about this series that we've done is we've placed Bibles in the lobby, lots of different kinds of Bibles with lots of different translations. Because somebody said to me, if you're going to start this series, you ought to provide the answer to all the questions which is found in the book. And I thought, oh, that's pretty good, right? So... So some folks came in and donated. A lot of different folks. A lot of you have donated a lot of Bibles. Last week... Um, when I shared some of the Bibles, several of you went out and got new Bibles, and that's awesome, and I pray you have been reading and engaging with that Bible this week. Uh, we had, I think, four athlete Bibles last week, and three of them walked out the door. I thought, that's cool. I hope some of our teenagers, some of our athletes got those. So I brought a few Bibles here, and, and they're still out in the lobby, and you are still welcome to go get those Bibles. The first one I want to mention to you is a women's devotional Bible is out there, so we've got Bibles for Women, and right next to it, I've got a men's devotional Bible, all right? that speaks to men's issues, right? And so you want a Bible that that has some good devotional literature in there for men? I think that's pretty cool, and I'll make sure those get out there. we got two of these out there. Uh, I, I love this one. Somebody finally gave me one of these. This is called the One Year Bible. Sometimes people say, I want to read through the Bible, but I really don't know how to read through the Bible. There are Bibles that we have actually out in the foyer that actually give you a plan, so you have a daily devotional every day, and you can read through the Bible an entire year. And so here's the deal. We've got those Bibles out there for a reason. Hey, Zoe, can I give these to you? And can you take those to the bookshelf in the lobby? Thank you. We've got those Bibles out there for a reason. You're awesome. Love you. Um, And you are welcome to go grab a Bible immediately after. If you've got one or if you don't have one, they're there for you. Okay? The Bible is a very unique book. Now, here's the next question I want to address. How has the Bible been copied or been translated because most of us think that if there are any errors in the bible that's got to be where it happened how has the copy the, the copies of the bible how has it been copied down through the ages and how has it been translated well i want to put some things up here on the screen one of the first things i want to put up on the screen is the different languages that i mentioned earlier so the bible started off in hebrew and as it moved forward as i mentioned during that babylonian era just a little small percentage was even in aramaic but back in the early days Every piece of the Bible, there was no Xerox, there was no Gutenberg yet with the printing press, every piece of the Bible had to be written by hand. So if you go to the Holy Land, I think this is a cool thing, when you go to the Holy Land, you'll discover that they have found these monastic scribing communities that existed as a complete community only to translate, not translate, to copy the Bible. For example, just right next to the Dead Sea, they discovered this place called Qumran. And in in Qumran, they found a place where the scribes had lived. They had lived in that place, their only job to continue to write copies of the Bible. Now, these people took this very serious. Now, I'm just going to move forward. Later on in the Greek, um, they they did some of the same type of thing with other scribe-type communities. But there's a major difference between how the Old Testament was copied and then passed along. And the New Testament. A lot of people don't know this. In the Old Testament, when those scribes were writing down copies of the Bible, I'm going to tell you some of their, the way they did it. They were meticulous in how they wanted the, the, the Scriptures to, uh, to be copied. And they guarded it. They guarded it with their very lives. They would not let it be on them. And they made sure that it was right. They had people, supervisors, literally checking their work. And it was, it was a holy, holy task to copy the Bible. And they would guard it with their lives. In the New Testament... Hundreds of years later, when, they got the, when people got a letter from Paul, they didn't guard it. They'd write a copy of it and send it out and send it out and send it out. They would try to spread it. They thought they had the best message in the world. And they didn't try to hold on to it make sure it was all right. They just started copying and sending it out like crazy. And so that's huge because I'm going to tell you how many copies were sent out all over. And we can look at those and we can tell how close they are to the originals. So the, the Talmudim, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. The Talmudim were, the, were some of the scribes of those New Testament as they were copying, and they were meticulous. And I don't have time to read this whole thing, but um, I heard stories, and I wrote down some notes um, from one of my classes back in, back in seminary about the Talmudim. The Talmudim, they could only write, um, remember, there's no white... Paper from Xerox, right? They had to write on skins of animals. They could only write on the skins of clean animals. And they fastened the strings that would hold all those pages together from clean animals. And each skin had to contain a certain number of columns. And each column had to, between, have, to have, have between 48 and 60 lines to be, and, and be 30, exactly 30 or less letters wide. The spacing had to be exactly the same. They measured it with what they called hairs between consonants and sections of the book. It had to be measured precisely. And the person, I remember these stories, the person who was writing in that, that monastic community there, and we're talking about translating the New Testament, for example, whenever they, whenever they would write, they had to get up in the morning and bathe themselves and put themselves in a completely Jewish garb. And then they would go and they would begin to write. And any time they got to the name Elohim, which is one of the holy names of God, they would have to mark their pen in a very sacred way and then write that name. If they ever made their way to the name Yahweh, they would have to literally go and bathe, come back, write the name Yahweh, and continue writing forward. The, these are the Talmudim. They were meticulous in how they tried to write the letter. And, and then, uh, uh, the next 400-year period after them were the Mazarites. And the Mazarites were even more meticulous. They had, they, had, uh, they even put more laws in place behind how the copies of the Bible would go. They, had, um, they would, they would double-check behind the people. They would... They would throw out any manuscript that was more than 30 days old. It had to be uh, checked within the 30-day period. Um, They were, when when a scroll was complete, independent sources would count the number of the words and the syllables forwards and backwards. They had numbered all of it. They wanted it to be exactly the Word of God as it was written. And if there was more than two mistakes on any page, it was thrown out. The entire work, not that page, the entire work was thrown out. This is how the Scriptures were copied through that time. Now, this is interesting because uh, the Masoretes were even more meticulous. These people took it. This is this their holy job in life. But look at this next one. We, we, beyond that, we get the New Testament. has 24,000 manuscripts. 24,000. Now, watch this. I'm, I'm going to put a chart up here on the top, and I just want you to see this chart. And I don't have a way. I couldn't fit this on the outline for your notes. I'm going to put this chart up here, and these are some pretty big works. The writings of Caesar, the writings of Plato. They were written... In the early B.C. period, the earliest copy we have is from A.D. 900, and the time span, 1,200 years between the original writings and the earliest copies, we only have seven copies of it. Look at these different ones. Aristotle, 400 years, but the A.D. copy we have is 900 years. 1,400 years span, 49 copies of, 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 the, of the, uh, the best copies we have of Aristotle. The closest thing to the New Testament is actually Homer's Iliad, which was written in 900 B.C., and, and the earliest copy we have is 400 A.D. There's a time span of 500 years, but we actually have 643 reliable manuscripts that prove what the Iliad, how it was written. But now look at the New Testament. The New Testament was written between 40 and 100 A.D. Its earliest copy we have was from 125 A.D., only a 25-year span between when it was written and when the earliest copy that we have, and there are more than 25,000 copies that these people got, copied, kept writing got and copied and kept writing. That's the way the New Testament was spread. And so this, what's interesting is there are so many copies of the New Testament, scholars go back and they look and they can know what was written in those letters from Paul to the Corinthian church because of that. we have so many of them to compare one another to. Wow, how am I doing on time? We've we got to go faster. All right, so, so just, a couple, just a couple more thoughts here. Um, let's, go to, let's go to how do science and history compare. You know, some people say, oh, the Bible, that's just a theology book. That's just a spiritual book. It's got nothing to do with science. It's not a science book, certainly not a history book. How does the Bible compare as a history book or as a science book? Is it reliable? That's, that's the big question. I want to throw a real quick chart up here. And this is, uh, these are just ideas that came out of the first five books of the Bible. These are the books of Moses. And what the Bible had to say 3,400 years ago, what the people that were living during that time thought And what we've learned today from science. So for example, the earth is a sphere. That's the way Moses presented it. The people at his time thought the earth was a disk or a flat surface. What have we learned today? There was more than a billion stars. The people at the time thought there was only 1,100 or so stars. 1,000 or so stars. We've learned more than that. You can just read those all all your same. And there's even more beyond this screen. The, the, The Old Testament alone suggested certain things that were scientific that didn't even match with what they believed at the time. But later on we've come to find out are very true. So the Bible says over and over again, it validates the science that we already know. I like that last one. Uh, that, that, that what the Bible says, that blood is the source of life and healing, but what people at that, th- that time thought, that they would, they would bleed you out to make you get out of your sickness. But we know today that was just killing a person, Right. So the Bible validates science. I like what one scholar said. He said it this way about science and the Bible. Uh, this uh, This is Robert Jastrow. He said, and I don't know if you can read that. He said, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. He says, basically, the, the Bible has suggested the truth long before we even could figure it out with our telescopes and magnoscopes. So, now, what about history? Let's talk about history for a minute, okay? And I don't have a long time to talk about this, but just to, there's, you could go on and on about how somebody picked up the Bible and said, well, that's not there. It's not, it's not historically accurate. And then later on, an archeo- archaeological dig would find out that's accurate. For example, um, the Bible suggests that there was a nation called the Hittites. And that's really big. For a long time, scholars could not prove with any literature that the Hittite nation ever existed. And then all of a sudden, in 1957, they discovered a new site and they began to dig. They not only found the history of the Hittite nation, it pointed them in the direction of uh, 50 more uh, nation digs that they could do and they found 50 more colonies where the Hittite nation had conquered other people once they began to dig in those areas. Daniel chapter 5 suggests that one of the kings that Daniel was under, Daniel and... that they they were under during that Babylon period, was a guy named Belshazzar. And according to every historical work, there was no king of of Babylon ever named Belshazzar. And then just a few years ago in the 1970s, they were doing an archaeological dig, and they found a, a piece of stone that had written on it the name of a king and then his sons. The very king that the scholars would say, the historians would say, he was the king of Babylon and what they found out in the, in the writing of that tablet was that that king had gone off on an expedition, and he left his son in charge, and his son's name was Belshazzar, the very one that was in the Bible. See, the Bible, I could go on and on, but the Bible historically and scientifically continues to be validated by what we learn, either through archaeological digs or by science. And then the most important point, point I've got to close down, one of the most important points is the prophecy. How does the Bible compare with Prophecy. How does the Bible compare with prophecy? These things that were spoken of. Now, there was a period before Jesus of somewhere between 1,400 and 400 years before Jesus was ever born that more than 332 prophecies were spoken about the Messiah. And you've read some of these prophecies, right? They speak to things like who the Messiah is and where he will come from and what town he will be born in and what his mother will be like. They talk about um, They talk about that... that, that People will bring him gifts. Kings will bring him gifts. They they talk about a lot of things. And all of a sudden, Jesus is born. And most of those things that were were written about there from the very beginning, you can't solve when you're a baby lying in a manger. That's just not the way it works. And so the prophecies that were told about Jesus were many. But as we know, Jesus began to fulfill those prophecies. I've got a number for you. There's a mathematician named Peter Stoner. Peter Stoner did what mathematicians do, which I don't understand what mathematicians always do. But he looked at all those different prophecies, and he asked himself the question, what are the chances that a person, just any person living on the face of the planet, could ever accomplish eight of those prophecies that were written about Jesus in the Old Testament? Eight of them, and that's the number he came up with. One times 10 to the 17th power. Just so that you know what that looks like, this is what it looks like. You have to put 17 zeros behind that one in order to really get the picture. One in that many people. Looks like this, 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 this. How does a mathematician figure that out, by the way, right? But one in in that many 17 zeros are the chances that one person could fulfill eight of those prophecies. Now, being a renowned mathematician, Peter Stoner actually took another step. And he asked himself, well, if that's the case, and it's almost impossible for one person to fulfill any of those eight of those prophecies, what would be the chances that a person could fulfill 48? 48 of the prophecies. More than 332 prophecies in the Old Testament. What are the chances? And this is the number he came up with. 10 to the 157th power. Picture one hundred fifty-seven zeros rolling out that way. That they would be one person could fulfill forty-eight of that. Now let me tell you how big of a number it is. You see that ten to the eighty power? That's how many atoms we have that we know about in the universe. So ten to the one hundred fifty-seventh power. What's the big point there? Big number, right? I think the prophecies and how Christ came to fulfill those prophecies. Not all of them have been fulfilled yet, but how we see that Christ has fulfilled those prophecies. I think it's one of the biggest evidences of the proof of the trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, any one of those things taken at face value, you could look at it and say, hmm, but all of them together, I'll leave it up to you. You have to decide whether you believe the Bible is true and real. But let me be very honest and let me speak to the thinking mind in the room. Let me speak to the thinking mind in the room for a minute. You really want to know whether the Bible's real? Don't take my word for it. Pick it up and start reading it. I would challenge you to start picking up the Bible and start reading it. Because what you'll find is this is what I found, and I know a lot of other people found this. When you start reading the Bible, the Bible actually starts reading you. Here's what starts happening. Now, I discovered this on a little French out in Entre Pierre, France, when I was only about 14 years old. I discovered in this book, it started telling me about the person that God wanted me to be, and it was a far cry from the person that I was. I started hearing a voice calling me to a different way of living, to a purpose-filled living. I started being guided by this book and all the small and the big details of life. And what I found was that God met me in this book, and he began to guide me with his word. And, and I, for me, for me, I found this book to be very true and very trustworthy. And I would say to you, you really want to know? Start reading the book. Last question of the day. Somebody asked this question. It doesn't necessarily have to do with the Bible, but boy, I did I think about the Bible when they asked the question. And actually, two people asked kind of pretty close to the same question, so I put both their questions up there. One person said, I don't question my faith. With well, that said, by the way, congratulations, you don't question your faith. Most of us do, all right? But anyway, I don't question my faith. With that said, how do I know that I'm good enough and worthy enough to receive His love and His grace? Another person said it this way, sometimes I am not always the best Christian. How do I know that He still loves me and why does He? (laughs) Big questions, right? Can I just speak to both those questions real quickly? To the first person who asked that first one, how do I know that I'm good enough and worthy enough to receive His love and grace? My mind immediately went back to this book, because this book tells me in the first chapter of Romans that here's what you can know about yourself. You can know that you're not good enough. You can know that you're not worthy enough to receive his love. The Bible says in Romans one that there's not one that's been holy. There's not one who's righteous. And that's not any of us that are worthy. The Bible says that. And so here's the freeing thing. It's actually it's a freeing thing. You are not good enough. You are not worthy enough to receive God's love and His grace. And so then we go to that second question. And that person says, sometimes I'm not always the best Christian. How do I know that He still loves me and why does He? And to that I would say, I don't know. <laughs> really? I mean, you've heard me so many times say to you that I've, I've found it. I've found the greatest mystery in the universe and it's in this book. I mean, have you ever thought about the greatest mystery that ever faced humanity has been? I found it, and it's right here. You can can figure out what you think is the greatest mystery. I told it. this is for me. I believe the greatest mystery in the whole universe is found in Jeremiah 31.3. And when that person asked that question, my mind went back to that mystery. Jeremiah 31.3. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That blows me away. I don't know why he doesn't change his mind on me. Oh, boy, I've given him plenty of reason to. But in his word, the greatest mystery to me that he's ever said is, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And to that person, I can say, I don't know. I just honestly don't know. But it's who he is. And guess what? I'm your pastor. And I can say for me, sometimes, I'm not always the best Christian either. But he has loved me with an everlasting love. I would never have discovered that mystery by myself. By myself, I'd never figured out. And by myself, I'd always said, well, I can't deserve God's love. I'm not worthy enough. But you know what the Bible told me? The Bible revealed those two things with me. There's not one that's holy. And none of us that are worthy and deserve it. But He has loved us anyway. Oh, thanks be to grace, right? So, thank you for listening to me try to answer a big God question about the Bible. And I guess as I close, I would just challenge you with one final thought. Pick up the book. Read the book. And see if you don't encounter a God who is alive and full of grace and ready to speak to you. Would you bow your head with me? Father, I thank you that you loved us so much that you wrote it down in a book. John Wesley said, oh, give me that book. At all things, give me that book. Give me the book of God. Father, I pray you'd forgive us sometimes for leaving the Bible on our shelf, for having the Bible just there collecting dust and not letting it engage our lives. And Father, I ask you to forgive us for sometimes just running forward in our lives, just running forward with the busyness of our lives and forgetting that you want to meet with us in the pages of this book that you've given us millennia old. Father, I pray for every thinking person, every believing person, every person who wants to engage into Your Word today. I pray for them this week, that as they pick up the Bible, as they maybe come to Wednesday night, purposely plugged in, I pray that You'd speak to them in the same way that You did with me this morning, in the same way that You did with me when I was on a mountain in Entre pierre France. Speak to them and guide them. And may Your Word come alive. Thank You. Thank You for the inspired, breathed Word of God. May it be so for us We pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to worship the Lord through our giving now. So give to the Lord and give generously. Finding myself at a loss for words and the funny thing is in